0: Your Bibles invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans as we continue our series through the book of Romans. We come this morning to the concluding uh, sections of of Paul's letter. And so we'll be looking at Romans uh, 15 verses 14 to 33. And as you uh, turn there, invite you to Bow with me this morning as we ask for God's anointing on his word. Heavenly Father, how good it is to gather in your house for worship. We praise you, O Lord. We honor you for who you are. And we praise you for revealing yourself to us through the words of Scripture. And I pray this morning, O Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit. I pray that you would give us understanding and give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear and give us hearts to receive the truths of your word. Oh Lord, may your word be planted deep in us and may it bear bear fruit of abundant transformation that would be for our good and for your glory. Lord, may you shape us to be gospel-driven disciples of Jesus through your word this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bear with me for one moment. I have slight computer issues. Um, I do invite you to stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. I invite you to stand too early. I was confident in my computer skills. All right, we're going to do it this way. All right, Romans 15, verses 14 to 33. The Apostle Paul says, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see, I hope to see you while passing through, and to have you assist me on my journey. On my journey there, after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to these uh, closing remarks in the book of Romans, it may seem that there's really not uh, not all that much to preach about. Uh, the, the main body of the letter is behind us. Paul has really concluded his his instruction, his his arguments, his his uh, theology. All the the main content of what he's wanted to say he's he has said, and all that really remains are some parting words and personal greetings. But we see in these closing verses, I think something. Uh, rather inspirational, uh, we see the unveiling of Paul's heart. And in the unveiling of his heart, we see things uh, to which we all should aspire. Now, when we began our, our study of Romans, uh, which is uh, some 15 months ago now. uh, We said that the, uh, in fact, I'm going to give you a little pop quiz here. In, In one word, what did we say? What have we said all along over the course of these 15 months? What is in one word the overarching theme of the book of Romans? The gospel, exactly. I'm, I'm, if you if didn't get that right, these last 15 months would have been a, a major waste of time. So I'm glad you got that right. It Indeed, the gospel, the main overarching theme of the letter. And we defined the gospel. I won't give you a pop quiz here, uh, but I hope that you could at least articulate, if not word for word, it, you know, some semblance of what is the gospel. Everybody should have in, their, in your minds sort of a, a ready, quick response if somebody should ask you in, you know, on an elevator up or whatever, uh, what is the gospel? You should have a, 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 a decent, uh, well-formulated for, well response to that answer. The, the way that we define, the way that I define the gospel throughout Romans is this. Uh, the gospel is the good news of salvation for hell-deserving sinners through the perfect righteousness and sacrificial death of Christ. A very simple, succinct definition statement of the gospel. And now in these closing verses, we see again how Paul's heart and, and ministry is, is driven by the gospel. So, before we dive into the text, I thought it would be helpful to give you just a brief review uh, of the book of Romans to show you again how the, the, the whole letter, every part of the letter, all the major sections of the letter relate to this overarching theme of the gospel. So, we'll walk through it real quickly together. So, the first part of the letter, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, uh, revealed, uh, unveiled the, the content of the gospel as the revelation of God's righteousness. We saw in that opening section the, the 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 theme verses of the whole letter, which is verses uh, 16 to 17, uh, where Paul said that the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, because the gospel, he says, reveals the righteousness of God. Now there are many sort of sub-themes, and different people could offer different uh, what what they might think is the main theme of the letter. I think all of them tie into the theme of the gospel, but, but certainly righteousness is a big one. That the, the righteousness that we need to be saved is a righteousness that God gives and is received through faith, not a righteousness that we earn by our works. Uh, justification by faith is another big one. Uh, the redemption is another big theme, but all of these tie into the theme of the gospel. In the second section, Paul revealed the need for the gospel, and he showed us in this section how all people are under the power of sin. And so we stand in need of the gospel because of the universal reign of sin over humanity. In the third section, Paul revealed the heart of the gospel, which is that we are justified by faith through uh, by, by faith alone through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. So we are saved by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone to the glory of God alone. And in this section, in this uh, third section, he, he talks about that, that justification piece of it, the heart of the gospel, justified by faith alone. In the fourth section, Paul revealed the hope of the gospel. So he shifted his focus in this section from justification to uh, the doctrine of sanctification. Having revealed how we attain righteousness, which is justification, he now in this section moved on to how we grow in righteousness, which is sanctification. Sanctification. In the fifth section, Paul gave a defense of the gospel as he dealt with the problem of Israel. How does, how does God's plan for Israel fit into the gospel and fit into God's uh, gospel plan, God, God's uh, sort of gospel story? He unveiled God's one plan of salvation driven by his mercy uh, to draw both Jews and Gentiles into his saving embrace. In the sixth section, which is where we have been the last couple of months, Paul revealed the transforming power of the gospel in Christian conduct. And so he's urged us to let the gospel change us and, and transform us and work, uh, work inside of us to transform us from the inside out that we might grow in Christ-like character in our relationships with one another and in the life of the church. In the seventh section, Paul gives us parting words for the advancing of the gospel, and then he concludes, which is where we're at this morning and uh, next week as well, and then he concludes with uh, doxology that celebrates the gospel. So everything, every part of the the letter ties into this theme of the gospel. That's a brief uh, review, and overview of the book of Romans. It is indeed a letter built around that central theme of the gospel. And in these parting words of Paul, we see this this gospel theme shine through again. We see in his words the anatomy of a gospel-driven heart. We see specifically, I think, four characteristics that make Paul a a gospel-driven missionary. And it's my prayer that these same characteristics will be formed in us as we strive to be gospel-driven disciples. So that's my goal through this, or what I think is what God wants to do in us through this uh, message this morning is to shape us as individuals and as a church to be a gospel driven, uh, gospel driven individuals, gospel driven families, gospel driven uh, married couples, gospel driven children, gospel driven church. So, four characteristics. What does it take to be a gospel driven disciple? We see first that gospel-driven disciples are responsive to God's gospel mission. Paul says, begins his letter this way, or begins the section this way. He says, I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now, Paul is, is defending here his, his bold and, at times, rather pointed exhortations in his letter, and he understands, and we have to understand that sort of the context in which he is writing, uh, that that this letter is written to a church he did not plant and a church he has, in fact, never visited. And that kind of changes the dynamic a little bit. He doesn't have a relationship with them like he did with, with the other churches, and so uh, Paul defends here his boldness to the Romans, saying, hey, even though we don't have... I know you, you, we don't know each other personally. I know that I, you know, I didn't, uh, don't have the same kind of investment that I do in other, in other churches. But he says, uh, I, I'm, I'm de- I, I can defend my, my boldness to you on the basis of God's call on my life. God has called him and appointed him to be a herald of the gospel to the Gentiles. And Rome... Just so happens to lie at the very heart of the Gentile world, and it's because his heart is responsive to God's gospel call and God's gospel mission that he dares to write so boldly to the Romans. It's not on the basis of anything else other than, hey, God has called me and equipped me and given me this mission to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, and you are at the very heart of that, and so that is where his boldness comes from. Now, Paul goes on to say, God gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This uh, language of the Gentiles becoming an offering acceptable to God is an allusion, uh, a reference to the words of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, God had said through the prophet Isaiah that he would draw, draw people of all nations to himself, And he would reveal his glory to the Gentiles and draw them into his saving embrace. It comes from Isaiah 66 where God said through the prophet, I am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages and they will come and see my glory. I will send some of those who survive to the nations and they will proclaim my glory among the nations and they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. And Paul understands that God's call on his life is in fulfillment of this prophecy. He is one of those Jews who has been called by God to go to the nations to reveal and to share God's glory. And so he has fully embraced God's mission to bring the light of salvation to the Gentiles. He understands that his life is not his own. And so he gives his whole life in in obedient response to God's call. A gospel-driven disciple is one who is responsive to God's call. So you, you live as one who understands that your life is not your own to live. You, you find your place in, in God's mission in the world, and, the, and then you give yourself to that mission. And you understand that the work that you do is is an offering to God. It's not something you, you, you begrudgingly do. It is an offering. It's an act of worship and praise to God. Paul described his, his gospel work as a priestly work. And the fruit of his work he described as an, as an offering to the Lord. And so for, for gospel-driven disciples, all of life is a liturgy. A pie baked for a neighbor is a doxology. A child who's rocked and held is a beatitude. A job well done is a sacrifice of praise. A Sunday school class well taught is an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Gospel-driven disciples are responsive to God's gospel mission. And so the question for us this morning, the question for each of us this morning is, is what is your place in God's gospel mission? And are you responding in obedience to his call? It might mean teaching your kids the truths of the gospel. That might be at this stage in, in your life and at this stage in, 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 in your salvation story. Maybe that's what the, what the call that God has placed on you, the way that he's calling you to participate in, in his gospel mission. It might mean sharing the good news with a neighbor. It might mean serving on a committee. Yes, that can be part of the gospel mission of God. It might mean starting a new ministry in the life of the church. Whatever it is, pursue it. We are made to be gospel-driven disciples, and gospel-driven disciples are responsive to God's gospel mission. The second characteristic is that gospel-driven disciples are God-glorifying in their kingdom work. You know, Paul Accomplished amazing things in his ministry. He, and he could tell of, of mighty wonders and and victories and miraculous escapes and, and churches planted and villages transformed and, and whole regions evangelized and countless people brought from, from spiritual death to life. He would have so many stories to tell, but Paul took credit for, for none of this. Instead, this is what he says. He says, Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. You see, Paul understands that that every triumph and every sign and wonder and every heart transformed, every church planted, every life changed, every Gentile converted, every single story of victory has come from the hand of God. And he's only a player on the stage. And so as we sang earlier this morning, all glory goes to Christ. Kent Hughes uh, says that this impulse to glorify God, this 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 sort of uh, response of, of of deflecting glory away from us and giving all the glory to Christ or to God, he says that doesn't come naturally to us. It is our natural bench to to take some of the credit or maybe a lot of the credit for the good things accomplished through us. And he uses the example of a of a little boy playing baseball in, in, in a little league, and he says he says we're like a little league boy who. Who steps up to the uh, up to the, the plate with with a bat in his hand to uh, to take a you know to, to, to hit, and the pitch comes and, and that boy swings that bat with all of his might and he gives it all that he's got and he and he barely connects, he barely grazes the, 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 the bat just barely grazes the top of the baseball as it comes across the plate, but it's just enough to send to, to send the ball sort of stumbling forward a little bit, and and it sort of dribbles its way forward slowly to the pitcher. And, and the pitcher picks it up and, and he and he's kind of frantic and, and, and he and he tosses it wildly over the the head of the first baseman. And so the batter the the, the boy who hit the ball keeps keeps running. Well the outfield, the, the outfielder was asleep. And, and not paying any attention. So when he finally is jolted awake and he gets the ball and he throws it wildly into left field and through all this, this whole series of, of miscues and, and errors and fumblings and mistakes, that batter makes his way all the way around and he crosses home plate. And when he crosses home plate, he launches into this, this victory dance as if it was the greatest home run ever hit in the history of baseball. And so often, Kent Hughes says, that is what we are like. We, we, we fumble our way through the kingdom and, you know, we, through a whole series of, of mishaps and, and mistakes and things that we, have, we could have no reason to take any credit for whatsoever. But we fumble our way through the kingdom and whenever good things happen, we take all the credit. The gospel-driven disciple understands that all glory goes to Christ. As Paul said, I, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. And by the way, isn't Paul's backstory probably a helpful way for him to understand and to realize and to sort of more naturally give all glory to Christ? For he knows well from whence he came. And it's quick to say, I am the chief of all sinners. Paul said to the Galatians, far be it from me to boast except in in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let us understand our place in God's redemption story. We are players on the stage. We're, we're, we're vessels and ambassadors. Like Jacob, we are limping misfits and scoundrels in the hands of a sovereign God. As Paul said to the Corinthians, we are like jars of clay. I, I love that, that imagery. We are like jars of clay carrying around within us this, this, this unbelievable, uh, all surpassing treasure of the gospel. That, think about that, that, that contrast for a, for, a, for a moment. Jars of clay, frail, brittle, you know, made of, of, of dirt, really not that valuable, just, just sort of uh, mundane, ordinary vessels that are easily flawed and broken and, and quick to crumble. And yet, so that's who we are in our nature, and yet we carry around within us this greatest of all possible treasures, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that, as Paul says, the power of the gospel is clearly shown to be from God and not from us. The third characteristic of gospel-driven disciples is that, is that they are eager to share the gospel with those who have never heard. Now, it is true that, that some have, what, at least I believe it's true, that some have the specific gift of evangelism. I, I do not. That's not, my, that's not one of my gifts, um, I also think it's true that some have a greater equipping and, and a greater sense of uh, a more specific calling to, uh, to bring the good news to the unreached people of the world. I think all of that is true, and yet too often I think we use that as an excuse not to do the work of evangelism at all. Well, you know, that's not my gift that somebody else has the gift, I'll leave it to them, and my gift, I'll focus on other things. I, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I don't have the same, I'm not called to go to the unreached peoples of the world. That That's not my thing. That may be true, but we, as we've often said, uh, to be a disciple of Christ is to be a disciple maker. And so we, we all are called to participate in some way to the call to spread the gospel and make disciples. We, we all are called to do the work of evangelism some are uniquely gifted and called to greater degrees. We don't all have hearts that burn like Paul's did, but we all have been given the commission to make disciples. And of course, there is no greater example of this uh, than the Apostle Paul. It was his burning desire to share the gospel with those who have never heard. Paul said, from from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition, my ambition, my driving desire to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. So Paul is saying that he has fulfilled his mission to bring the gospel to the unreached peoples of the East. And now that same burning passion and conviction and ambition is compelling him to go uh, onward to the unreached people of the West in Spain, which is what what Paul says in verses 23 to 24. Now that there is no more place, he says, now that there's no more place for me to work in these regions, in other words, in these regions to the East, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you in Rome, I plan to do so when I go to Spain, which is to the West. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, to really understand and to get a sense of what's behind all of this, I think a sense of Paul's ambition and his commitment and his, uh, his drive to share the gospel with the unreached people of the world, I think it would be helpful to consider these words of Paul in, in, in visual form. And so, uh, when Paul says... That he fully proclaimed the gospel of, of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. This encompasses a vast expanse of land uh, east of the Mediterranean Sea, as indicated by the, green, by the green circle. Now, just to kind of explain that a little bit, that, that Paul, when Paul says that he fully proclaimed the gospel in this region, he does not mean, of course, that there's not a single person left who has not heard. Uh, of course there are going to be individuals who have not heard Paul's strategy was to evangelize the the larger the more influential cities to plant churches in those cities and then to leave to others the sort of the, the radiation of the gospel out to the surrounding villages that was that was his plan and his approach and with that approach Paul says he has he has covered this entire region to the east and after faithfully proclaiming the gospel to the unreached people of the east <clears throat> excuse me, th- uh, covering thousands of miles of territory and enduring more hardships than he could possibly recount, what did Paul decide to do? Did he say, hey, you know, I've, I have done my duty. I mean, you know, I've gone above and beyond. I have traveled thousands of miles. I've reached thousands of peoples. I've, I've planted all these churches. I'm going to, in my last waning years, kick back and enjoy retirement. No. His ambition continued to burn until the day he died. And so his ambition compelled him to go to the unreached people of the West in Spain, as you can see in the red circle. Now what's interesting is that we see how Rome was conveniently uh, situated between the now evangelized uh, uh, east, the green, and the unevangelized west, the red. And by the way, the, the the Spain was in Paul's day thought to be the ends of the earth. And so Paul's like, I'm going to go to where nobody has gone. I'm going go to go as far to where to where you know as far as I can possibly go. I'm going to go to the ends of the earth to find unreached people, to find people who've never heard the gospel of Christ. That's where I'm going to go. And Rome is right in between the two, as you see by the by the black star. Now, uh, Paul had this deep, said he had this deep longing to visit Rome, and now we begin to see a bit of what's behind that longing to visit Rome. So he wanted to visit Rome not only for a time of mutual encouragement, as he said way back in chapter 1, but also as a stopping point on his way to Rome. It was his burning desire to share the gospel with unreached people that, wanted, that, that moved him and compelled him to want to go to Rome. He hoped that the Roman church would support him and provide financial assistance and provide encouragement for his mission to Spain. So everything in all of this is driven by his burning desire to go where the gospel has not been preached. And so he wants to go to Rome as sort of a launching point to continue in his waning years to fulfill that mission. And the point in all of this, then, is that Paul was driven. I mean, driven every waking moment by his burning desire and passion to share the gospel with those who had never heard. That was the engine that drove his whole life and ministry, and I think we can learn, and I think we, we, we should learn from that, especially in the Christian Reformed Church. We, we are... To just to be blunt, we, we are not very good at evangelism, or we're not, we're, we don't do evangelism well in the Christian Reformed Church, we don't do it very faithfully in the Christian Reformed Church. And I'm part of that. I, 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 I have felt convicted in my own study of this text I need to do evangelism better in my pastoral ministry, we need to do evangelism better as a church. We need to do evangelism better as a denomination. Here's what, just one little statistic for you. In, in 2006, our denomination welcomed 3,400 people into the kingdom through evangelism. That's not a very big number, especially compared to other, other denominations and other, other ministries and things like that. But, but still, th- that is what it is. 2006, 3,400 people uh, through our denomination welcomed into the kingdom through evangelism. That, that works out to about four conversations. Uh, four converts for people per church. Um, it's now 17 years later. Uh, last year, 16 years later in the year 2022, our denomination welcomed 800 new converts into the kingdom through evangelism. That's a, that's a drastic fall and a drastic reduction in number. Uh, that's less than one person per church. We're not good at evangelism. We we need to do better. We, we we can learn from Paul. I mean, if we can catch even just a a glimmer of, of his passion for the unreached, we could be in a much much better place. I I I really appreciate. I have a good my good friend and, and uh, former seminary classmate Scott Vanderplug uh, spoke on the floor of Synod this past June, and, and I, I love the way that he because he addressed this issue and it was really a close an issue that's close to his heart. And I have a lot of respect for Scott. He's a great pastor. He's a great, good friend. Um, and, and I love the way that Scott put it on the floor of Synod when he said, he said, you know, we, we, we as a denomination have, have what it takes to be, to be he's, I really believe that we could be known for evangelism. Because he said, we, we are a five-talent denomination. God has blessed us with, with an immense amount of gifts. We have a robust theology of the sovereignty of God. We have a robust view of the lordship of Christ. We have all the tools and all the, the leadership. We have everything in place to be a gospel-driven denomination, a, a denomination that's known for its evangelism. And I, and I think he's absolutely right. And there are some good things that are happening in our denomination along these lines. Uh, One of the best is from my good friend, Scott Vanderplug. Uh, His church in Florida is experiencing tremendous growth through evangelism. And he has developed a program to help Christians and churches in their evangelistic efforts. That program is called the 222 Disciple. If you've heard about it, I hope you've heard about it because Pastor Ben has talked about it. Pastor Ben has completed the, the program, the training, and, uh, and has spoken very highly of it and is now beginning to implement that, to put that into practice in, in, in our context here uh, in Appleton. May God bless these efforts and may more of us catch the vision to be disciples who have a burning passion and desire to share the gospel with those who have not yet heard. Finally, gospel-driven disciples are humbly reliant on the power of prayer. Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. Paul believed in and and continually relied on the power of prayer in his ministry. And he also understood what prayer is. Notice the, the words in the second to last line. Uh, by God's will, in verse 32. Those words are significant. Paul knew that prayer was not a matter of, of bending God's will to ours, you know, trying to get God to do what we want him to do, but rather of, of, of prayer was a matter of aligning our, our will with God's. Or our will to God's will. So we, we bring the desires of our heart to God in prayer, knowing that he is absolutely able to do all things. And yet trusting God to work out his will in ways that may not align with our desires. That's, that's the dynamic of, of prayer. And we, we do that all the time in the things that we, we pray for. We, we know that God is able to do all things. He is absolutely sovereign over every square inch of our existence. And yet we also know that he is, his thoughts are above our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. And so his plans and purposes for us may not mesh with what we think his plans and purposes for us should be. And so we trust in his sovereign will. Now, in Paul's case, it kind of worked out this way. Paul asked for prayer for three specific things. He asked that he would be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea, that, uh, that the contribution uh, he was taking to Jerusalem, the financial gifts he was bringing to the poor in Jerusalem would be favorably received, and that he would be able to, to come to Rome uh, with joy to be refreshed in their company. Three specific things that he wanted them to pray for. And we know uh, how some of those, kind of how those prayers were answered, at least uh, in in part. Uh, God didn't exactly answer those prayers, I don't think, the way Paul envisioned or would have mapped them out in his own mind, the way he would have wanted them to be answered. We read in Acts chapter 20 to 28, we read all about what Paul's uh, journey to Judea and what that looked like. And and so he endured all kinds of hardships from unbelievers on his trip to Judea. And so technically that prayer was answered in the sense that he was kept safe in the sense that he wasn't killed. But I kind of doubt that that's all that Paul had in mind. He probably, you know, he wanted more protection than that. Instead, he was opposed and mistreated and falsely accused, beaten, tried, and, and imprisoned. We don't know how, Scripture doesn't record how the second prayer was answered. We kind of can kind of assume it was probably received favorably because who wouldn't want to receive gifts, right? The third prayer was that, that uh, he would come to Rome with joy and in their company be refreshed. And again, well, he made it to Rome, but it was two years later than he anticipated because of all the troubles he endured from the unbelievers in Judea. And he, when, he, when he got there, he arrived in chains. Probably not the way he, ma- he had mapped it out in his own mind. As gospel-driven disciples, we are humbly dependent on the power of prayer. And we humbly submit to the sovereign will of God, knowing that we might not get what we want, but trusting that God will work through all things for our good and for his glory. So these are some of the characteristics that make up the anatomy of gospel-driven disciples. They have a passion to glorify God as they respond in obedience to God's gospel mission with a burning desire to share the gospel with those who have never heard as they're humbly reliant on the power of prayer. Now, I think that if you're like me, we we probably all, having heard these characteristics, would say that we have a long way to go to get there, certainly a long way to go to get to what Paul was like to be the kind of gospel-driven disciples that we would want to be. And it may feel a little bit overwhelming and a little bit like the task is too big. It's, it's too much. There, 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 so we don't even know. It is almost paralyzing to even begin. And so i encourage us just to start small. Don't try to go out and evangelize the world tomorrow. Just start with one person. Start with one person. Start with one prayer. You know, pray for an opportunity to share the gospel with one person in your life. If you can't think of a single person, then pray that God would give you a person in your life with whom you could share the gospel. And then see what God does. Step out, pray, pray for opportunities, step out in obedience, see what God does. Because I believe with all my heart that he will do amazing things. We don't have to do everything all at once, we just have to take small steps in the right direction. Let us learn from Paul and begin to live as gospel-driven disciples to the glory of God. Let's bow together. Lord God, we praise you for who you are. We praise you, O Lord, for the gospel, the good news of salvation, for hell-deserving sinners through faith in the perfect righteousness and sacrificial death of Christ. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would stir our hearts with your, the power of your Holy Spirit and move within us, O oh Lord, as individuals and as families and as a church to be gospel-driven people and gospel-driven families and a gospel-driven church. Forgive us, O Lord, for the ways that we have neglected the gospel. Move within us by your Spirit to make us more fruitful, gospel-driven disciples. Lord, hear our silent prayers of surrender, of confession, of commitment, and of renewal as we bring them silently before your throne. O Lord, move within us by the power of your spirit for the advancing of your kingdom and the glory of your name. Mold us and shape us, O Lord, to be gospel-driven disciples. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're gonna close our worship in song this morning.